This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. In the meantime, our hot question of the day. Have you caught this story about concert tickets? It's just going to drive you crazy if you like to go to concerts. So Live Nation admits now that it worked with artists like Metallica and about 10 other performers that they didn't name to directly put tickets onto secondary ticket selling websites. We're always wondering about why concert tickets show up on these secondary websites before you have a chance to buy them firsthand. This is why they put them there because the performers wanted to get a cut of those higher price tickets. So we want to know for our hot question of the day today, would you pay more for a concert if you knew it would cut out scalpers? So would you pay more, say, on Ticketmaster or Live Nation if you knew that then you wouldn't be, you'd be totally cutting out the scalpers? We say, yes, absolutely. No way. Does it depend on the concert? Check out our hot question of the day, Sarah 980 or email me, simi at cknw.com. We'll be getting more information, we hope, from the RCMP. They're holding another media update and briefing about what has been going on in the northern part of our province. In the last week, you've had three murders two missing people, and a whole lot of mystery. And BCRCMP are saying at this point, they share the public's concern uh, after these mysteries that have come to light. So now they're looking for uh, a man with a beard who they say had been seen talking to one of the victims of that double murder. That would be China Deese and Lucas Fowler. Uh, Their bodies were found along the Alaska Highway a little more than a week ago. And then there's the death of another man and the two missing uh, young men from Vancouver Island. All of this, does it tie together? We don't know yet. But we wanted to check in now with Nadia Stewart, who is a global news reporter who is up in Fort Nelson, and she joins us again right now. Nadia, thanks for being here. Yeah, good morning to me. Okay, so another update today. Do you find, are RCMP giving more information now, do you think? I think so, but I I do think a lot of that has to do with the public pressure between uh, the media doing what we can to work sources and push the story forward, but also the public. We're hearing uh, so much concern from the public about these two incidents. It's just so unusual. People just have so many questions. So I do feel like now they are... Uh, stepping up and providing this information uh, on a proactive basis. Right. So yesterday they provided those two, um, so those two composite drawings, which people can find on our website at cknw.com. So what do we know about these these two people in these drawings? Uh, well, for the um, for the individual uh, in that description, that that picture there, um, that that third person that was seen there with uh, Fowler and Deese. Uh, what all that we know is from this roadside worker who says that she saw this individual, this third person there speaking with them. Uh, she initially or another media reported that the exchange between them was heated. Now police are, are walking that back a bit, saying they have no reason to believe that it was. Uh, but that individual, um, all we have is a description uh, of him, Caucasian male, that he was shorter than Lucas Fowler. So Lucas hmm. Fowler uh, was six foot three. Uh, so he was shorter than him, uh, had a beard, and might have been wearing glasses. In the picture, though, I believe you see him also wearing, uh, also wearing a ball cap uh, or some kind, of, some kind of covering on his head there in the, in the image. So we don't know um, a lot about him. There is a lot of chatter, of course, on social media. Uh, I'm sure you've seen some of it yeah. uh, as well, Simi, uh, trying to make the connection between um, that, uh, that fugitive who made his way up through Manitoba. Uh, police are not ruling that out, but they're not making any definitive connections as well. Okay, and so what, is the, have, what is that story? So this is a man from Texas who's wanted for homicide in that state? That's right, and apparently he snuck in uh, illegally through the Manitoba border. Um, there is some, um, if you go back uh, to the RCMP's website, they believe he got in sometime around June the 24th. He got into the country. Uh, and so people are drawing connections based on that composite sketch and based on his photo. People are making connections. But again, that's not concrete. Right. Okay. And so we've got uh, more information needed on those two cases. Did they talk about any possible links between these cases, Nadia? I have to say, Simi, that's going to be the big question today at the 11 o'clock presser. Um, at this point, that is really what people want to know. Is there a connection? Uh, can police link these two? And, and that's really what we're going to get at this morning at 11. How would you describe the feeling in the communities up there that you have been to? 
You know, it's it's unsettled. I, I, I'm not sure if I talked about this yesterday, but when we went up to um, uh, to uh, Liard Hot Springs and spoke with folks up there, um, especially the roadside workers, the people who are out there all the time, um, they said that now they are looking over their shoulder. Mm-hmm. Any little noise um, has them nervous. Anything that they see that looks a little suspicious, they are nervous. They've got their sat phones, of course, because there's no reception up there. Uh, so they have their satellite phones on them to make a call if needed. Uh, but at this point, um, they're scared and, and they want some kind of assurance, uh, either that a police have, have, you know, something nailed down in terms of a suspect or a better handle on what's exactly going on or that they can assure them of their safety. All right. Well, we'll be waiting to hear what happens as well. Nadia, thank you. You're most welcome. That is Nadia Stewart, our global news reporter, who is up in Fort Nelson talking to people, gathering information in this case. The RCMP update will come at 11 o'clock this morning, about 20 minutes from now. We will have that live for you. This story is also marked, I think, by the amount of international attention that it has been receiving. Claire Allen and I were talking about this earlier on the air. Uh, there, And Nadia was telling us yesterday, too, that she has been talking with um, Australia's Uh, Channel 9, Channel 7, they have sent crews there. They are knocking on doors, talking to people, witnesses, trying to find out what happened in this case. Uh, There are a huge amount of interest. In fact, yesterday when I was leaving work, noticing on the New York Post website, this was also their top story, their big headline. Uh, So there is a huge amount of interest in this all over the world. And to give you an idea of how this is being reported elsewhere, how they're being told of this story. Have a listen to this report by Alexis Daesh from Australia's Nine News. It even includes some sound of uh, Lucas Fowler's father, Stephen, and police from yesterday's press conference. Just the two of them road tripping through Canada's northern Rockies. He met a beautiful young lady and they teamed up. They were a great pair. Lucas Fowler and his American girlfriend, China Dees, embarking on an adventure in the Chevrolet van Lucas bought and fixed up himself. Early evening on July 13, they're filling it with fuel and giving it a clean. Then the pair duck into the service station using toilets and grabbing snacks. China looks relaxed with her Aussie bow, licking a slushy as they prepare to head off into the summer night. In two days' time... They'd be shot dead on the side of the highway. It's a love story that's ended tragically. It really is. It's the worst ever love story because we now have two young people who had everything ahead of them uh, tragically murdered. The man detectives want to speak to was spotted standing in the middle of the Alaska highway the night before their bodies were found. The man was seen speaking to Lucas. Interestingly, footage from the days prior shows the van's back windows undamaged. By the time Lucas and China were found lying beside it, the right side was smashed. Adding to the complexity of this case is a mystery man found dead on the same stretch of highway near a burning truck. Police want to speak to these two young men who own that truck and are now missing. It's possible that they are linked. In my time here, it is unusual. I mean, we we have seen homicides, but generally speaking, not of this nature. The worker who served Lucas and China here told police there was nothing out of the ordinary about the young couple coming in that night. But detectives have revealed they're looking into hours of other CCTV and dash cam footage, as well as tip-offs from the public. As an experienced police officer... I know how these investigations go. But the pain of losing a son is something else. Nothing prepares me. Nothing prepares my family for what we are going through now. Alexis Daesh, Nine News. So that's uh, a listen to how audiences in Australia are being told this story. They have several crews in the northern part of our province also looking into and digging into this story. That was from Alexis Daesh, Australia's Nine News. Uh, that is one of the reasons why, as Nadia Stewart pointed out, our Nadia Stewart said that the RCMP have... I've been feeling the pressure of how much international interest there is. There is another briefing coming up in about 15 minutes time on this, and we will have that for you. Well, some news that has just been developing in the last half hour that we've learned about. The Vancouver Public Library is being banned from taking part in this year's Vancouver Pride Parade, which is coming up in just a few weeks. We wanted to find out why. So joining us now is Andrea Arnott from the Vancouver Pride Society, the executive director. Andrea, thank you for joining us. 
You're very welcome. Thanks for having me on. Can you tell me about this decision? Why do this? Yeah, so the Vancouver Public Library uh, allowed a known um, transphobic um, speaker to have a platform on site at the Vancouver Public Library. And um, we've responded to requests from the trans community um, to take action on this. And this is our decision. And what did the Vancouver Public Library say anything about this? Were they a part of the were they asked for their comment on this? Uh, yes, we have spoken with um, the head librarian and to the city of Vancouver, um, and we've communicated uh, what um, our decision was going to be and what things could happen so that um, queer and trans and allied um, employees of the library could still participate in the parade um, so that they have that support and um, they can be uplifted during Pride, um, but that we didn't want um VPL to have banners or vehicles in the parade this year. And what was their response to that? Um, their response um, was that they, they're committed to trans inclusion, um, that I think they understood our decision, um, and they're, they're happy that their employees can still march in the parade under City of Vancouver's entry or with their union. Um, and we'll be rendezvousing with them in the fall once Pride season is over to talk about next steps and what what things they're going to be working on. Now, Andrea, I remember this story from back in January when this all happened, and there was a lot of concern at that time. Was was the Vancouver Public Library made aware at that time that this was going to be a problem? Uh, they definitely were. Um, there was a lot of um, commentary from trans and queer community um, about their concerns. Those were shared with the public library. Uh, and then since then, um, the Coalition Against Trans Antagonism, um, which is a grassroots trans organizing group, um, has sort of led the way in sharing their concerns with the Vancouver Public Library. So we've attended multiple meetings. Uh, Vancouver Pride Society signed a joint letter written by the coalition um, expressing their concerns and, and requests to the Vancouver Public Library. Yeah, what is this process like, Andrea? Because this is not the first time that an entity has been banned from taking part in Pride. So what is that thought process like? Yeah, so it, it's a complex, multi-layered process yeah. um, of dialogue and discussion, and it's hearing concerns from community members. Um, it's engaging in dialogue um, with different groups who are interested and involved and affected by it. Also, our board has lots of discussions um, about it, but in the end, um, our, our job is to listen to the most marginalized voices um, and to make sure that no one gets left behind. So when we need to take action on something. Um, Vancouver Pride Society has a large voice um, and we do have, you know, our Pride Parade. Um, and so often we are uplifting those who who don't have that voice. Yeah, Is there concern then in the Pride Society, perhaps that some organizations, some companies are trying to play both sides of the issue sometimes? Uh, I, I possibly yes. Um, in in specific cases, um, it's something that not everyone knows that every um, parade entry gets scored on a matrix, and we have a parade working group made up of community members. It changes every year, um, and it's led by myself. So those community members sit down and review every single parade entry. So there's about 140. So they do that starting in September, and they meet once a month to do that, um, and. You know, we look at every single parade entry to look at where they're at, what they're doing for the community, how their values align with Vancouver Pride Societies, if they've had any homophobic or transphobic incidences, if they have policies in place. Um, so there's a lot that goes into um, discussing each and every parade entry. Right. So you don't want just somebody to kind of come in and make themselves look good. Yes, uh, that's we're looking for what they do throughout the year. So there's actually a question on the matrix um, and on the parade application asking what either internal initiatives and external initiatives a company or organization engages in throughout the year, not just on, on parade day. Right. So then for the Vancouver Public Library, can they perhaps reapply for next year if they wanted to? Oh, definitely. Um, I think we're going to work closely together um, in our off-season, so starting in September, and, and uh, look at um, ways that they can um, be back participating next year, just like we've, we've said with UBC. Right. And when you do the, the matrix and you look at all the people who've applied, are there companies and organizations that you say, yeah, no, you're just not a good fit for us? 
Yeah, every year there are applications that are denied right off the bat um, because they haven't filled out the application in full or they can't say that they've updated their policies, let's say, to include gender identity and gender expression like we actually ask to see people's policies Um, or just there isn't a strong values alignment. So every year there are um, parade entries that do get denied. We send them an email um, with a list of things that they can work on to strengthen their application in the future. Um, But yeah, we deny some every year. Interesting. Andrea, thank you very much for your time on this. You're very welcome. That is Andrea Arnott, who's the Executive Director of the Vancouver Pride Society. Right now, though, let's talk about wills, inheritances. Touchy subject, even at the best of times, right? When we're uh, still healthy and going strong, we're reluctant to talk about that moment when we may not be around anymore. Always a difficult discussion. And when a loved one is gone and you're not happy with maybe what was in the will, also a difficult discussion. We've been hearing about this high-profile case uh, that's been in the news the last couple days. Local families surprised to find that the will their parents left behind favoured two siblings over the others. And in this particular case, the parents were farmers. They had moved to BC in 1964 from India with the help of their children. They worked hard. Uh, They built a successful farm. The whole family had contributed to their business. But after the passing, the parents had left more than 93% of their more than $9 million estate to just their two sons. The four daughters were left to split the remaining 6.5%. That will was contested in court. B.C. Supreme Court judge overruled the will. And instead, the sons were each given $1.8 million. The daughters each received $1.35 million. We're going to talk more about this. B.C. estate law is different uh, from the rest of the country. Uh, and we want to find out more because one of the people who was involved in changing our laws is our next guest, Wally Opel, former Attorney General of B.C., also an arbitrator and mediator with Belton Law. Uh, Wally, thanks for being back with us. Always good to be with you, Jimmy. This case uh, really kind of rang close for you because of the changes that you brought in. It did, because uh, when I was the Attorney General, it was recommended to me by the law reform people and virtually everybody that we should not tinker around with wills, that if someone makes out a will, that is his or her wish as to where the estate should go. And what right does the state, the government, the courts have to uh, interfere with the wishes of the testator? But... I know from my personal experience, uh, particularly in this province, we're a multicultural province, there's an inordinate number of Asian people who leave a disproportionate amount of their estate to their sons, and they exclude their daughters. And I just think that's terribly unfair, and uh, I think there has to be more equality between men and women. And uh, so I was quite adamant about it, and we decided that we would retain the right of a person to contest a will where that will was unfairly, affects people unfairly. And that's what happened in this case because there were six siblings Mm -hmm. and uh, each of the daughters got $150,000. Each of the four daughters got $150,000 and the $9 million farm went to the two sons. And the judge, uh, Judge Adair, uh, grappled with this and I thought that she did absolutely the right thing. How do you decide, though, how, when you wrote the legislation, when you were working on this, how did you determine what constitutes unfairness? That's, that's a really good question. Unfairness depends upon the individual circumstances of the case. You still have to start with the starting point, as always. You have to, you have to uh, adhere to and respect the wishes of the person mm-hmm. who's making out the will. But often, as in this case... It was patently unfair as to what was done because the judge found that the the women, the girls, uh, contributed significantly to the growth of the farm and to the estate. So she did what I thought was the right thing by reapportioning what was done. And, uh, and I think at the end of the day, fairness was achieved. So then if you, lots of people think they're wronged though, Wally, right? Especially when a a parent dies, lots of people, children think that that's not fair. I didn't get X, Y, Z. But how do you you apply the law to say, you're right, you didn't get? Well, you don't always win in these cases. It has to depend on the individual circumstances of the case. The facts in this case are pretty flagrant. You know, $150,000 for each of the four women 
while the sons got the uh, large part of the estate, and the judge saw that. So it doesn't work in every case. I mean, I do some of these cases now as a lawyer, and I also mediate these cases. So there are enough of them around to know that, that, that uh, where there is an indication of fairness, the courts will step in. The courts will not do it in all cases. Right. Uh, the uh, courts do respect the wishes of the person who makes the will. But here, uh, I noticed that it's an inordinate amount of people in the Asian communities, particularly in the South Asian communities, who don't always respect what their daughters have done in accumulating the estate. And that unfairness has to be achieved through the courts, unfortunately. Yeah, I guess I wonder then as well is that when those wills are drawn up, because they clearly take the time to make the will, which a lot a lot of people don't do, Yes, that is there any responsibility on the part of the lawyers or the notaries who handle those wills to say, listen, you're kind of opening yourself up to some challenges That's here. That's a good point. Absolutely. I would think that most estate lawyers who draw up wills will point out to their clients the risks that they take yeah. when on the face of it, the um, disposition of the assets appears to be unfair. And it don't always have to be equal, not at all, but it has to be fair. And you have to, do you have to provide a reasoning? Like, let's say in this particular case, they had said, we know what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. Would yeah. that have made a difference? I think that does make a difference to some extent. But in this case, it was pretty flagrant as to the way the uh, the assets and the estates estate were divided up. It was clearly unfavorable to the uh, to the four women. So what rights then does a person have, does a child have in contesting a will? What, what well, kind of factors do you have to take into consideration? Well, I think you have to look at the whole of the circumstances. What did that person contribute? Was that person left out unfairly? Were there irrational reasons for leaving that person out? Was that person deserving of uh, a reapportionment? So those are some of the things that the judges look at and the mediators look at when uh, when we decide these cases. Was, are, are judges willing to do that then? Are they willing to say, yeah, we'll take that money and we'll put it over here? Well, they don't do it in all cases, but the judges are, are careful. But that's what the law is. The, the uh, act uh, and the law preserves the right of uh, those people who are unfairly dealt with to contest the will and go to the Supreme Court if necessary. Do you have you ever gotten blowback on this? Because as you said, you know, you instituted this. You you wanted to make sure this happened when you were the attorney general. You talked very specifically about you know the South Asian community as well. You must get some criticism over that. I did, and uh, but the thing is, you have to do what's right, and you don't always have to do what's ra- what's popular when you're making laws. And and I thought it was the right thing to do, and that's why we did it. And. Would you change anything now? Are there ways to tinker with this? Well, I, I don't think so. I think it's working well. Uh, there's no floodgates open in this case. And uh, as I said that I'm doing these cases as a lawyer, there, Trevor Todd does a lot of these cases. And so there are enough of them around, but they don't always succeed. There have to be sufficient grounds. There has to be sufficient evidence to compel a judge to change the terms of a will. Interesting. Okay. And so this is different from other provinces? Yes. In Most provinces way? have decided that that the person who makes out the will, the testator, should have an absolute right to decide what uh, should be done with his or her estate. And, you know, that ignores some of the realities of our society. We're a multicultural community. Our country is multicultural. We have 40% of the people in Vancouver are foreign-born. And many of these people come here with other values. And if their values are inconsistent with with uh, our values of equality and fairness, fairness between the sexes, gender equality, then that has to be looked at. And I think it's unfair if we uh, just ignore that. It's right across the board, though, isn't it? Because, I mean, I've heard of problems with wills and inheritances. It just seems like from every background, no matter what sure. kind of background, oh, it's always a testy yeah, subject. Yeah. I, you know, look, when I point out the Asian community, I'm just saying that because I'm a member of the Asian community, I'm well familiar with some of the True. thinking that goes on, there's always been an uh, unequal treatment between young girls and young boys, and that's gone on, and that shouldn't be tolerated. And it carries on to the making of wills, not in all cases, yeah. but it does in certain cases. I'm not, I'm not painting the whole community with an unfair brush. I'm just saying it's there, and it's something that we need to look at. Is it difficult to contest a will? Uh, well, the onus is on you to... to uh, contest it, and you have to show that there was basic unfairness, 
that you didn't have, uh, you weren't, uh, you weren't cared for uh, in the terms of the will where you should have been, and not not all cases succeed, but there has to be some pretty compelling evidence before a judge will interfere. And would you say a lot of these go to arbitration? Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, most they cases all are go going to, to mediation and arbitration now anyway because it's far too expensive to uh, to go into a courtroom. And uh, I mean, this case lasted 15 days in a courtroom, so it's expensive. And it's also unusual then for it to yes. go that far yes. to the yes. court. Yes. Even though the two brothers, I understand in this case, did agree that their sisters had done quite a bit of the work on the yeah, farm. Yeah, my understanding is that they didn't agree upon the, the proportion that ought right. to be given to their uh, to their sisters. And so that caused the matter to go to court. I guess the advice then, Wally, for any parents out there who are making their will is be as fair as you absolutely possibly can. Absolutely. You don't and want to uh, cause trouble later in life right, after you're absolutely. gone. absolutely. You know, I mean, there's... You, you got to set aside some of the grudges and the emotional uh, dislikes you may have a particular child, and you have to look at this Don't logically. Show. Don't play favorites. Most of all, you need to get sound legal advice. Yeah, that's good advice. And don't play favorites because, right. you know, we, that could be a whole other segment about right. parents playing favorites. Right. Right. Don't do that in exactly. the world. Exactly, yeah. Good. Good advice. Wally, good. thank you for that. Always good to be with you. A very dramatic turn of events this morning, just in the last hour, actually, in this case that has riveted so many people over the last week. Everybody has wanted to know what happened to China Deese and Lucas Fowler. They were found dead a week ago in northern BC on their way to Leard Hot Springs. This couple, very much in love, uh, this Australian man, this American woman, seemed to be on this great trip until clearly something went horribly wrong. Then we find out over the weekend of another case, a burned out vehicle, and two kilometers away, another body found that still hasn't been identified. What was happening in northern BC? So many questions. And then an hour ago... A little more clarity, and it was dramatic clarity from the BC RCMP. Two teens who had initially been listed as missing in all of this are now being called the suspects and considered dangerous uh, in the murders of those two young tourists and the unidentified older man. So RCMP Sergeant Janelle Choyette says 19-year-old Cam McLeod and 18-year-old Briar Schmigelski, both Port Alberni residents, have now been confirmed to have been spotted in northern Saskatchewan. They are said to be driving a 2011 Toyota RAV4. That is not the vehicle that their families had initially identified them as driving. That is the pickup truck, the one that was found burned out at 50 kilometers south of Dees Lake over the weekend. Where did this Toyota RAV4 come from? RCMP also cautioning, though, that they may now be driving a different vehicle, but that is the one they were last spotted in in northern Saskatchewan. Here's more from the RCMP. Investigators have also been able to confirm that Cam McLeod and Briar Schmigelski have left British Columbia and have been spotted in northern Saskatchewan. We believe that they're likely continuing to travel. Though we don't have a possible destination, we can now confirm that they were last seen driving a grey 2011 Toyota RAV4. Given these latest developments, Cam and Briar are no longer considered missing. The RCMP are now considering Cam McLeod and Briar Schmigelski as suspects in the Dees Lake suspicious death and the double homicide of Lucas Fowler and China Deese. We're asking for the public, if you spot Briar or Cam, consider them dangerous. Do not approach. Take no action and call immediately 911. That uh, is the RCMP Sergeant Janelle Choyette about an hour ago with the dramatic update in this case. Let's get more information now from Global News reporter Romina Dea, who was at that press conference an hour ago. Romina, thanks for being here. No problem. We still have a lot of questions with this case, though, don't we? It was pretty clear when we listened to that press conference. Yeah, a lot of questions in regard to what exactly changed, right? Yesterday, when we were here at RCMP headquarters less than 24 hours ago, I asked that question, whether or not these teens were considered suspects in any of these dead bodies that have been found in any of these cases. And um, yesterday, they said that they were considered missing. 
So the key thing is what has changed uh, in the in less than 24 hours to now link these teams to these three dead bodies and actually call them suspects. I mean, it was just absolutely stunning news this morning that these 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 two from Port Alberni, 18 and 19 years old, that they are now suspects with these three individuals. The, the only thing that police are willing to go public with at this point, Simi, is the fact that they were spotted in northern Saskatchewan. They were driving a grey 2011 RAV4. We have the, the latest images of the teens um, on our website, so you're going to be able to see that there. The public can also see the image of um, this vehicle that they were in. It's not a file shot. It's actually the vehicle that the suspects are believed to be in. The RCMP say they're not saying exactly where in northern Saskatchewan they were seen, because that could jeopardize the investigation at this point. Right, but now, granted, I was going to say one more thing. Yep. Just, um, just you know, it, as as the public looks at these images, um, you know, the, the police are asking people across the country to take a look. They're asking for help from all Canadians. Um, be mindful of the fact that they may have changed their appearance. Police are saying, and they may have changed their vehicle. Right. And Romina, as you pointed out at the press conference here, uh, what we're not, what we don't know is what changed because clearly something big changed because now the RCMP are calling them dangerous. Absolutely. As I said yesterday, we asked that question point blank and they were considered missing yesterday. And yesterday, the exact language from the RCMP was that there is a possible link between these three people um, as far as the dead people, the victims. And today now, unequivocally, they're coming out and saying that these two teens from B.C. are now wanted in connection to all three of these, these deaths. Right. What have you seen in terms of the pressure the RCMP is facing on this, Romina? Because there's a lot of international attention on this case. There, there, it's, it's making headlines worldwide. Um, you know, it, I asked that today. It feels like the RCMP did um, come out with a, with a press release. So on, on, on Tuesday yeah. of last week, there was a press release about Lucas Fowler from Sydney, Australia, and um, also uh, the woman he was traveling with, um, Miss China Dees. Um, she's from the States. So there was a press release. They didn't know their identities at that time, but there was a press release on Tuesday, a day after the bodies were found along the Alaska Highway, that there were two bodies found and that the deaths were considered suspicious. But at that point, there was no press conference. It was just a press release that was posted on a website. So no press conference happened. Um, There are no highway road signs talking about if you have information, if you have surveillance footage, if you have dash cam video, please come forward. So at that point, Simi, it didn't seem that there yeah. was an urgency attached to this case where you had two dead bodies found roadside. It seemed like the urgency stepped up um, several days later, four days later on Friday, when it broke in the Australian press regarding the identities of these two individuals and the fact that the victim, Lucas Fowler, was the son of a very high-ranking officer in Australia. That seems it seems like that was yeah. was the precipice of where everything just started moving at rapid fire speed. So, what if anything do we know at this point about Cam McLeod and Briar Schmigelski? We don't know a lot about them. We, I mean, when we heard yesterday that they were missing, we heard that they were possibly going up north to look for work. Um, we know that they were friends, uh, Port Alberni area. We know that we, we don't know anything about their background. I mean, they're young, 18 and 19 years old. Um, so it makes you wonder what could the possible motive be? And uh, police are not going into any of those details. We don't know if these teens have criminal records. Um, none of that information is clear at this point. Okay. And have they been in contact with their family? Because they had been, right, before they went missing. Yes, they had been, and the, and the family believed that they were they had gone and they were looking for work. That was the indication police had. At least that's what they told us. That's what was revealed yesterday when um, they were talking publicly about them. Okay, so what are you going to be uh, looking for today, Ramina? I know we look forward to your report tonight on the News Hour. What what are you going to be looking at? Well, we're going to be looking at trying to find out a little bit more about these teens. I bet everybody is, 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 is baffled across the country, across the world. How is this possible? As I said, you've got three dead bodies in the course of, the week, of a week. 
two teenagers now that are suspects. What is the possible motive here? What do we know about these kids and their backgrounds and the days leading up to when these bodies were found? We also have crews. We've got Nadia Stewart, our global news reporter. Um, she is up north, same with Sarah McDonald. So we will have full coverage coming up later today. All right, Romina, thank you so much. You're welcome. That is Romina Day, our global news reporter, also covering this. She's been covering it from here. Went to that RCMP press conference at E-Division today. We have Sarah McDonald up in Dees Lake. We have Nadia Stewart, who's in the Fort Nelson area. Uh, pretty big global news team that is covering this story. And now we're hearing that the two young men here, Cam McLeod, Briar Schmigelski, a uh, day ago, we thought they were missing. This morning, an hour ago, RCMP tell us, no, they are now suspects in the three homicides of China. Lucas Fowler and the still unidentified older man that was found on Sunday. Let's talk about another story and this one from Surrey last night generating a lot of discussion and headlines. So the mayor of Surrey, Doug McCallum, has named the people who will sit on his new police transition advisory committee. Turns out none of the independent councillors or anybody who is not a member of his Safe Surrey Coalition is going to be on this committee. Not sitting well with a lot of people. Let's talk to Global News Senior Reporter Janet Brown about this. She was at that meeting last night where this was announced. Janet, thanks for being with us. Oh, my pleasure, Simi. Yeah, it was a long meeting last night, lots of issues on the agenda, but everybody, it seemed, most of the reporters anyways, were waiting for the announcement on who would be sitting on this new police transition advisory committee, which was formed after the mayor did away uh, last week with his public safety committee. And as you say, he announced those folks that are going to be sitting on it. The mayor will be chairing this committee along with all of his Safe Surrey coalition colleagues on council. And left out of this new committee are the independent councillors Jack Hundile, Brenda Locke, Stephen Pettigrew, and Surrey First Councillor Linda Annis. Now, Simi, I tried to get the mayor to comment on this decision and move of his after council wrapped up last night, but he quickly exited the council chambers without staying behind to talk with me and the other reporters there, in spite of me running down the aisle at council and calling out his name. Here's what it sounded like. Mr. McCallum, Doug, excuse me. Sounds like you're talking to yourself there, Janet. I was, and, and, you know, in council chambers in Surrey, it's not like a lot of other council chambers. The media can only get so far I- into the chambers to try and talk to members of council and the mayor. It's cordoned off at either side of the of the room, and beside this cordoned off portion are security guards on either side. So, you know, the mayor is still about 24 feet away from us, but other members of council told me, and Jack Hundile last night tweeted that he heard me yelling out to the mayor to wait, and he didn't even look in my direction. This is the third council meeting in a row, Simi, that the mayor has left the council chambers with me running after him, yelling out his name, Mr. Mayor, Mr. Mayor. And, you know, I think it's important for people to hear from the mayor because, first of all, it balances a story. Uh, You know, it's disappointing to just have one side of a story told. Uh, Second of all, I think it's good to hear an explanation, uh, for example, why he he put this committee together with just uh, members of the Safe Surrey Coalition. And for me, I feel like I'm an extension of the public. I am the one that can go and get the answers for the public. And when politicians and others don't talk to the media, then I don't have an answer for the public. And I feel like it's almost snubbing the public uh, when politicians, elected politicians, don't talk to reporters. So that was very disappointing, very frustrating. Um, I talked to Councillor Linda Annis and asked her about her thoughts on the mayor ignoring the media last night. I think the mayor needs to be talking to the media. The mayor needs to be engaged with the community. He needs to not be running away from this issue. He needs to be talking to and explaining why he's making some of the decisions that he's making because clearly uh, we're not hearing about it at council and he should be talking to the residents of Surrey. Yeah, I find this interesting because Linda Annis used to be on the board of Crime Stoppers, so she's got a lot of experience in this area. And then Jack Hundell, former uh, police officer, former member of the mayor's team, also not in this committee. Seems like a lot of experience that's being left out, Janet. We're saying that too last night, Simi. Councillor Hundile, a former Surrey RCMP staff sergeant, and he actually told me last night that he asked the mayor last week if he could sit on this new committee. And here's what he has to say. 
It's not just the mayor. I mean, I think the other councillors, too, need to sort of engage with the public. Uh, it's one thing to, during the campaign, to say that we're going to be out consulting with the public and be engaged with the public. Another thing to be in chambers, which is a more formal setting. But after that, though, um, we've got a lot of things going on here, and the community does want to know what is going on, uh, not just in policing, but I think in housing, in transportation. Um, so uh, I will grant on the, on the platform of transparency, um, and I will continue to be uh, transparent with the media as much as I can. Janet, this is so interesting because you're talking about somebody who, when they were first elected, you were like, wow, not a lot of opposition on council here, right? His 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 party swept all the seats except for one, and now it's a completely different situation six months later. And, you know, it could change again. Um, p- others are saying, you know, perhaps there may be other defections from the Safe Surrey Ooh. Coalition over to sit as ind- independents. Who knows? I mean, that it, that's yet to be seen. But, I mean, it's still early in the term, too. We're not even into the first year of the four-year term. Um, you know, let's talk a little bit more about this new committee, too, Simi, if you don't mind. Um, uh, we got about 30 seconds, Janet, counselors- so go ahead. Okay. Um, just to let the, the listeners know that uh, this new transition committee is expected to be in place for three to six months, and its mandate, according to the mayor, is to support the policing transition process prior to the establishment of the Surrey Police Board. And it should be noted that we are still waiting right. for the province to decide if this is going to be approved or not. Oh, boy. All right, Jen, I know we're going to be talking to you more about this. So listen, thank you very much. Thank you, Simi. That is Global News Senior Reporter Janet Brown. Cam McLeod and Briar Schmigelski have left British Columbia and have been spotted in northern Saskatchewan. Cam and Briar are no longer considered missing. The RCMP are now considering Cam McLeod and Briar Schmigelski as suspects in the Dees Lake suspicious death and the double homicide of Lucas Fowler. And China that is Sergeant Janelle Shayette from the BC RCMP speaking a little more than an hour ago with that shocking turn of events. The two teens initially listed as missing in the northern part of the province now considered dangerous suspects in the murders of two young tourists and an unidentified older man. Now, we're not getting a whole lot more details other than that right now. RCMP saying they don't want to jeopardize the investigation. But really, until this morning, until about 11 o'clock this morning, it was believed that those two teens had vanished while driving to the Yukon in search for work. At least that's what they had told their family. That's what they were going to go do. Instead, We now know their burning camper van was found last Friday, about two kilometers away from the site where the body of an unidentified unidentified older man was also found, and nearly 500 kilometers away from the Liard Hot Springs area where uh, China Deese and Lucas Fowler were murdered a little more than a week ago. What is going on in this case? How unusual is it, these developments that we're seeing right now? We wanted to talk more about that. Joining us is Dr. Michael Arntfield, who's a criminologist at the University of Western Ontario. Dr. Arntfield, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on. How unusual is this case from what you've seen so far? Well, it's very unusual. Uh, I actually predicted yesterday once the... um, word of the burnout vehicle was announced and that no bodies were inside, that that was likely an attempt at destroying evidence and that uh, the missing teens were likely persons of interest. Now they're actually been declared suspects. And that's, I think, in part because uh, this poses a serious threat to public safety, given that you have not one but two alleged killers working as a team uh, who are at large. And uh, in Canada, team killing, as we call it, particularly uh, serial team killers, which, uh, I mean, these are allegations or suspicions, but if, if they, they turn out to be responsible, they are by definition serial killers, uh, is, is pretty rare. In the U.S., it now accounts for about 26% of all uh, serial murder cases. So it's interesting. Uh, some criminologists predicted a few years ago these cases would probably increase, and now we see it coming to Canada. What were the reasons why criminologists would say this would increase? Uh, we don't fully understand why we uh, or why, but we do know that it statistically has been increasing consistently since around 1975. I, it was initially uh, fairly rare for two people to find each other who would be prepared to carry out these types of crimes. Uh, and the thought is just with a, a, a traveling and motoring public that you get people brought together in a car who, who come up with these ideas. And we actually see, looking at about 115 
team serial killing cases in the U.S. Uh, over the last hundred years or so. Number one, it goes up sharply after the 90s. And uh, number two, about one third of these cases are committed while traveling on the road in a, in a vehicle, much like the one in this case. And you, you said that when you heard the news of the burned out vehicle, you started to think there was more to this case. What was it about that? Like, is there a pattern? Is this something you've seen before? So first of all, uh, the fact that in the initial murder of the couple, uh, that there did not seem to be, first of all, a motive, at least not one that was made public. Uh, there was no talk of a robbery or of, of a sexual assault. The bodies were in, still in the vehicle, as I understand it. Uh, very rare for a single offender to ambush uh, a, a, a two or more people, whether it be a male and female or two males. Uh, so that, number one, suggested uh, a duo. And number two, what's interesting, you can glean from that that the, the motive by default was what we call thrill or enjoyment. And in solo offending cases, for uh, solo murderers, that only counts for about 2% of uh, the motive for murder. Uh, that jumps to almost 30% when you're talking about team killers. So just statistically and based on what the crime scene and there is some original crime scene uh, video footage uh, that was made public uh, based on what I was seeing it suggested to me two or more offenders male offenders uh, and then when you have the boys vanish and their their vehicle is torched near where a third body is found to me it, it suggested uh, some kind of a, their involvement on that part why do you think this case has attracted so much attention? And it's, it has, I think, for the public and the media since the moment we heard about Lucas Fowler and China Deese. Yeah, I mean, this is really a case, I think, that galvanizes people. Number one, it, it stands, the horror of this case stands in sharp contrast with sort of the, 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 the scenic hinterland of the area. And number two, you have very sympathetic victims, I mean, uh, who are tourists to this country, uh, and, you know, starting their lives together, it seems, who are, are, are killed at random. And then now we factor in the mysterious circumstances of this still unidentified body. You've got the, the composite sketch, which it looks like in so many cases of composite sketches may just be a red herring. Uh, and now you've got a manhunt. And so, I mean, it has all the elements that I think really... Uh, really seize people's attention for the right reasons. Okay, you said, like, with so many composite sketches, they turn out to be red herrings. Why is that? Uh, we never really know. I mean, it's the same as vehicle descriptions. I mean, uh, the number of cases that have been derailed because there's an eyewitness description of a vehicle, uh, much like an eyewitness description of a person of interest that then gets sketched out. And, uh, I mean... So many cases like this, people see ultimately who they want to see. They call in. Uh, I mean, they can be useful, but they often they use up a lot of resources chasing down leads that end up uh, being dead ends. And in reality, much like again vehicle descriptions. Speaking of team killers, I mean the most probably infamous wrong vehicle description is, is the white van attributed to the DC snipers about right. 15 years ago. Um, it, it can really be real an investigation, and and these people they're made with good intentions, but unfortunately they they very seldom pan out as, as viable leads. Now, given your knowledge of how these things work, like what's happening? Do you think in the investigation right now? Well, uh, there, there's going to be numerous police agencies involved, so you're going to have something of a, a quick rig task force, for lack of a better word. You've got police in Saskatchewan, obviously involved, which will involve include the RCMP, but may include also municipal departments, depending on uh, where they're seen next or, or last seen or presumed to be traveling. You've got the RCMP in BC. Uh, the FBI is involved, as I understand it, because of the American victim, as well as, uh, I mean, this is so close to the border, they're going to naturally take interest. So uh, you've got essentially a manhunt. You've got two crime scenes back in BC. This is, uh, I mean, all hands on deck, and there's a lot of moving parts. And factoring in, again, the urgency and, and threat to public safety, I mean, this is really going to pose a challenge for investigators. What do you think about the amount of information police have provided at this point? Well, I think initially, obviously, they were reluctant to say, you know, these cases are connected, which would uh, send the public into a panic. Uh, but I think their approach so far has been uh, measured and responsible. Uh, they didn't rule out that they were connected. Naturally, people are going to ask questions. I mean, how are all these events occurring so in such close proximity, and at least in time, in, in an area that sees very little violent crime? 
Uh, and then obviously once they know that they're suspects and there's a sighting of them, they very quickly alerted the public and, and specifically as to where the public should be looking for them. Right. So when you look at a case like this, and obviously you've studied quite a few of them, what, how do you classify it as, because we've heard the term already, like serial killer? What makes a case serial killer and others multiple murders? Right. So uh, since about 2006, there has been essentially an uh, agreement among scholars of homicide, uh, and this was agreed upon at a symposium in Texas uh, that included law enforcement agencies, that serial murder is now uh, two or more murders at separate times and places. And they could be, uh, they're typically separated by at least um, a day. Uh, you could have a set of serial killings in one day, but we would tend to refer to those as multiple murders for the reasons you mentioned. So it's successive murders versus uh, separate times and locations and victims for different reasons. Uh, the U.S. federal code definition is still three or more victims, but that's largely a bureaucratic definition just to justify the involvement of the FBI in these cases. So two or more victims, uh, separate times and locations. So this one qualifies under that definition? Absolutely. Right. Okay. So uh, do you think the distance here provides a challenge to investigators as well? You're talking the two scenes 500 kilometers away. Now you're talking they've been spotted two provinces away. Yeah. And this is, again, I'll go back to the DC snipers case. When you have active killers on the move uh, and then active crime scenes spread so far apart, uh, it, it poses significant issues just in terms of uh, crime scene management and relaying information and ensuring continuity uh, between the scenes, as well as, again, uh, tracking the suspects. So uh, this is, however, I mean, a great example of why having a federal police force, unlike in the U.S., that has actual officers on the ground and deployed in patrol operations, that um, it provides cohesiveness and continuity uh, that will hopefully um, you know, pan out in this case. Right. So you're saying in this case, the structure of the RCMP is a help. It is, very much so. All right. Well, Dr. Arnfield, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me on. Fascinating discussion. That's Dr. Michael Arnfield, criminologist at the University of Western Ontario, who's clearly studied lots of different crimes, weighing in on what we have heard from the RCMP today. One of those stories that we have been talking about today is a situation in Surrey. As we heard from Janet Brown earlier, the mayor of Surrey, Doug McCallum, named the people who are going to sit on his police transition advisory committee. And he made that public last night during the Surrey Council meeting. This committee replaces the public safety committee that the mayor recently disbanded. Now, he's going to chair the new committee and it will include his safe Surrey coalition councillors, all of them. The people who are not included, any of the independent counselors, Brenda Locke, Jack Hundell, who is a former police officer with extensive police experience, Stephen Pettigrew, or Surrey First Counselor Linda Annis, also uh, used to be on the board of Crime Stoppers, so also with some criminal experience. So is this the way to go? Why do this? Why not add people with a variety of voices to discuss an issue that has so much importance to people from all over Surrey. Well, to talk more about this now, we are joined by Alison Patton, who is a Surrey City Councillor representing the Safe Surrey Coalition. Uh, Councillor Patton, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Simi. What did you think about this decision to only have Safe Surrey Coalition councillors on this committee? Well, I think forming the committee was a part of the 12 um, steps that um, were in the final report on the citizen engagement strategy. So it's the next step. And I was surprised it wasn't happening sooner, but I'm glad it did happen. And I do like um, the fact that um, in the press release today, the uh, statement made was the goal is to have the, the police operating by April 2021. And the members appointed are collectively focused on ensuring that we are able to do that as and achieve our goal. So I do think those are the right people to be on the committee based on that statement. Okay, but you don't think maybe a variety of voices might have been needed for something that is so important to the people of Syria and not just everyone from one party? Well, I think the challenge we face is the um, the shift in um, voting practices. So when we first made the decision um, on our first council meeting, it was a unanimous vote. And all we have is our word, and that seems to have changed. So um, 
I find that disturbing, and I'm not sure if that's very good to have on a committee when um, all you have is your word and the word keeps changing with some of our members. Right. Do you have any policing experience? Um, well, I do have an MBA in leadership, but uh, no, I've, I've, I've done some undercover work in my business when I had a fraud case, but no, I've, I've never been a police officer, no. You don't think it might have been valuable to have somebody who has some knowledge on sort of criminal statistics and crime in Surrey? Well, what's interesting is my understanding of it is once we um, we run our um, council on governance model and um, our involvement officially was to be um, making um, the vote, having the vote in our first meeting. And from then, officially, it really wasn't for us to be that involved other than when we were in the public safety committee. We were brought into it and involved in a big way because it was one of our main campaign promises. But officially, that wasn't required of us. And so, um, you know, I, I think that that's something that we need to remember, that we make decisions and then staff uh, carry the decisions through. And we help with the communication and the champion of championing of the issues. But it's not actually our right to be in, that involved in the process. But, Councillor Patton, like, what do you think of the criticism leveled at Mayor McCallum, that he doesn't consult or he isn't open to hearing other potentially valuable viewpoints? Yeah, I was just reading today the um, a summary that I receive each day on the media reports out there and um, some of the terms that um, are being stated by my colleagues. Now, I've been in the same meetings as all of my colleagues. So, um, you know, some of the terms like blindsided has been used or my way or the highway. And um, I just wonder sometimes if, you know, if we're talking about people who uh, their word is all they have, that sometimes when people make these types of statements that they're really talking more about themselves. And when you look at our decision and our support of the housing project last night, um, we were unanimous in our support of that. And we've um, provided a lot of support to the the social policy committee chaired by one of our uh, members of council. And we've been extremely supportive of that whole process. And um, we do very much care about that. So I just wonder whose way or the highway that we're really talking about at times. So do you think party unity is more important than people's independent voices? I think that sticking to a promise is very important. And I think that I've not had the experience of my colleagues. Um, I think perhaps their ability to listen might be uh, at times challenged. Uh, Their ability to to speak is, is very good, but their ability to listen might be challenged at times. Do you have any concerns about this transition to the new police force, about the number of officers that are going to be available or anything like that? Well, I've always said that, you know, again, going back to uh, our work, it's in governance and it's high level. It's not um, in the weeds. Getting in the weeds is where things get complicated and and, and that's where name calling starts. And um, I think this is a 10-year vision, something that is a, a decision made that, 10 years from now, people will be saying it's the best decision ever made. It's never easy at the beginning when huge change starts to happen. And the question I keep asking is, why? You know, why the change in attitudes of people? Why? And this this change came months and months ago. It had nothing to do with the comments made recently. Why do you, wait, 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 why do you say that? Because, I mean, Jack Hundell says it was recent developments right. that made him leave the party. No, what are you saying true. that happened months ago? I was aware months ago of that intention, and um, that concerned me in a big way. And so um, I, wasn't, I wasn't happy about that because I ran with a team, a very strong team. We worked very hard, and we were committed as a team. That was my impression. And uh, obviously that wasn't the case. So you don't have any concerns, and even though the number of officers is going to still stay the same or even fewer than what you have right now, you're okay with that? The thing that I was really happy about is this transition report um, came together from very good sources. So we had the Vancouver Police, we had Dr. Griffiths, the PhD, who's written numerous books. He's the go-to person on these types of things. And I've uh, had lots of talks with other um, police chiefs in other regions who have a municipal force. And, um, you know, I have an MBA in leadership, and I've studied a lot of, and I had a lot of RCMP officers in my class. And the thing is, it's not about policing experience. It's not about numbers. It's about intelligence and in how things get put together and how nimble 
people are in handling issues. So there have been some issues that have happened since we've been elected that haven't been handled quite right. And it could have by, had a different outcome. By who? What do you mean? Well, I don't really want to get into it, but all I'm saying is that I'm I'm very happy with the intelligence level, uh, the comprehensiveness level of the report and the way that we're going to employ this new um, police force. So I don't actually have concerns like that. I don't think in that same way. I don't think like that. All right. Well, Councillor Patton, thank you for your time on this today. Yeah, my pleasure. Anytime. I'd be happy to talk to you at any time. Buddy. Okay, thank you. That's Alison Patton, the Surrey City Councillor representing the Safe Surrey Coalition. We did try to talk to Mayor McCallum. He was not available today. Let's talk about another story that I, I found this very interesting over the last few days. We hear these complaints every time a big concert comes to town. You want to buy tickets, right? So you go there, you wait until the moment the tickets are on sale, you're poised, fingers on the keyboard, boom, you try to buy them. Oh, they're all sold out. Oh, but look, right away, they're available on some secondary website. People get so frustrated. They think, how does that happen? Now we have a better idea how that happens. So Live Nation, which is the huge multi-billion dollar company that owns Ticketmaster, has been accused of colluding with artists like performers to put those tickets right onto those secondary markets. And it turns out, yeah, they're admitting they've done this in some cases. Uh, They say in the case of Metallica and about 10 other artists, they did directly put those tickets onto the websites so that the performers could get a cut of the higher priced tickets. This is something we've heard before. To talk more about this, Claire Allen joins us now because, Claire, this has been a familiar refrain for some time for people, frustration. Yes, definitely. So the reason why we're finding out or we have hard um, evidence now that this is happening is because Billboard magazine obtained a recording between Live Nation President Bob Rue and an event promoter named Von Millette, and he's the one who recorded and shared this private conversation. In this conversation, uh, an associate of Metallica allegedly enlisted Millette to sell close to 88,000 tickets directly to third-party sites in order for each party to profit even further from the ticket prices. So essentially, Metallica said, we want to put 88,000 tickets on from our tour that's ongoing right now. It's called the World Wired Tour. We want to put those on secondary uh, secondary sites where we can jack up the prices and we're going to make even more money. So you're wondering how tickets end up on StubHub or Verified by Ticketmaster. Mm-hmm. Some of these bands are putting them on there. Yes. It's not scalpers. It's the bands well, doing that's, this. That's what happened in this Metallica case. But when, um, but the, we'll learn a little bit more later on in this interview about if this has been done before uh, in other cases. Yeah, let's so, talk about that because Bruce Allen, who obviously deeply, deeply in the music business, has talked about. I've talked to him about this yes. in the past, where he's seen this before. Yeah, so he's. You're right. He's been talking about this a lot, and so I uh, um, asked him why he thought it has taken this long for them to, for this to become news and for there to be hard proof. Well, I think that, uh, you know, bands didn't want people knowing what they were doing. I've never heard of anything done to that scale. Uh, you've always heard once in a while about different artists maybe pulling 300 tickets or 500 tickets to put out there with the flying squad trying to get rid of them to uh, to uh, to secondary market people or, or to ticket totes. And I, I think this 88,000 is the shocker of all this because this is just done before any fan can get a chance to buy a ticket, which I think if the fans find out about this, are going to be irate. Okay, the fans did find out about this. Yeah, and you know what's interesting is that uh, Metallica actually has some very loyal fans. They've had yes, yeah. So I mean, this is definitely a kick to the gut to them to learn that the band that they've idolized for so long are selling these tickets at a higher rate. But anyway, so um, Billboard actually asked Live Nation. They presented them with the recording and they said, "Look at this. We have the evidence. Have you done this before?" And Live Nation said that they've actually only done this for a dozen other artists. Now I asked Bruce if he buys this or if he thinks more artists are doing this or have done. This in the past i'm gonna buy that for the time being I, I because i don't think many artists want to want to do that so i'll buy it but the interesting thing is i wanted to keep in mind uh live nation or any promoter has to do what the artist wants or will try to do what the artist wants and uh, a lot of artists that's why there's these funny writers that you read about where we want you know separate cars we want hotel rooms or we want this backstage or that kind of vodka or this and that their 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 job is to really look after the artist so if it's coming from the artist sometimes i feel that the promoter doesn't have much choice or they'll go to another promoter but uh, live nation like i like i said i haven't heard anything like this that's so wildly out of whack 
before in my whole career. I mean, like I said, I've heard of, you know, bands uh, pulling 500 or 300 or 400, 500 tickets, but not, not this kind of number. All right. So does he think this is the only factor? Like why are tickets so expensive? Um, Yeah. So he says that this is a factor, but there are also a ton of other factors. Most artists I've been involved with have been very aware of their ticket prices and they try to hold them down as best they can. But everything's going up. I mean, rent for the buildings are going up. uh, Promotion money's going up. Trucks and buses and, and, and stage gears going up. Every, our prices getting, our expenses are getting higher and higher. So we have to maximize the dollars we bring in. The interesting thing is, is that when you see something like happened at for for uh, Hamilton show on Broadway, when the fellow who produced Hamilton had two hundred and fifty dollar tickets, which is fairly standard for Broadway, and then looked at the scalping sites and saw them for eight hundred dollars being sold in serious numbers, he decided that he was going to put all his tickets at eight hundred dollars. And believe me. He didn't slide back anything attendance-wise. So that, that was obviously what their fans, the fans would pay. Now, that means some fans would pay, not all fans. But when you have an industry where people, where if you're involved in an industry where stats show that the average fan or the average music fan goes to 1.5 concerts a year, then you can see that you could get a pretty good ticket price for the real super fan. Right. So essentially, performers are a little afraid of pricing their concert the way they'd like to because it'd be backlash. Which leads me to ask you, Claire, would you pay more for a ticket for a concert that you really wanted to go to if you knew that meant completely cutting out scalpers and secondary sites? No, to be honest, I think that some concerts are ridiculously priced. So I don't think I would pay I don't think I would pay more. I think they're too expensive as is, just regular prices. 